Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Management of ADPKD is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. And this activity is supported by independent educational grants from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this webcast entitled Management of ADPKD. I'm Neera Dahl. I'm a professor of medicine in the section of nephrology at Yale University. I'm joined today by my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Craig Gordon. Thank you. My name is Dr. Craig Gordon. I'm an associate professor of medicine uh, in the Division of Nephrology at Tufts University School of Medicine, and I'm very fortunate to be speaking here today. Before we get started, let's review our learning objectives. Upon conclusion of this educational activity, participants should be able to describe updated best practices for initiation and management of pharmacotherapy in rapid progressors for loss of renal function in ADPKD, identify risk factors for rapid disease progression, review the general management of ADPKD regarding blood pressure, summarize the most recent clinical research and dietary modifications that have been shown to benefit patients with ADPKD. Craig, let's look at the more straightforward approaches to managing a patient with ADPKD. First is pharmacology. There's only one approved treatment for ADPKD, that's tolvaptin, which was approved for patients with rapid disease progression. How would you define a rapid progressor? Thank you. So uh, as you can see here, uh, patients can be uh, determined to be rapid progressors, and this study was defined as uh, reaching uh, ESKD or kidney failure by the age of 62. Uh, and this could be assessed in a number of different ways. Uh, the first would be through uh, measuring uh, height and age adjusted total kidney volume to determine someone's Mayo imaging classification, and those who are Mayo imaging class 1. C, 1D, and 1E disease. This requires bilateral renal cystic disease uh, to be class 1. Those individuals with classes 1C through E are likely to be rapid progressors and candidates for treatment. Uh, one can also monitor the change in total kidney volume, or what's done more likely in clinical practice is monitor change in GFR uh, in patients with PKD and no other uh, major comorbidities to explain the decline in GFR. So in individuals where there's a GFR decline of greater than 2.5 uh, mLs per minute per year, averaged over a five-year period, uh, in including those with classes 1C, 1D, and 1E disease, uh, would be candidates for treatment. Uh, individuals with TKV growth, uh, if you have multiple measurements of greater than 5% per year, uh, and this is three measurements uh, at least six months apart in time, uh, would be a, another way to determine individuals at risk of rapid progression. Uh, there are some clues and factors that are suggestive but not definitive uh, as far as defining rapid progression. This would include a family history of earlier onset kidney failure under the age of 55, individuals with PKD1 mutations, uh, and uh, individuals where there's data from the pro-PKD score of uh, evidence of 
early onset renal cyst bleeding or infection, early onset defined as before the age of 35, uh, onset of hypertension before the age of 35, and as we will review uh, a little bit later, uh, individuals with kidney length on ultrasonography of 16.5 centimeters uh, or higher in patients with bilateral typical cysts and individuals under the age of 45. And looking at this slide, I think we're just breaking up the data in a slightly different way. So talking about genetics, either a PKD1, which is more severe than a PKD2 mutation, and looking at environmental factors, which we'll talk more about low fluid intake or high salt intake or uh, obesity, which is is, uh, we're learning more about. And these things can then lead to an increase in cell pro- pro- I can never say this word. These things can then lead to an increase in cell proliferation, inflammation, and fibrosis. And we can note then from these things happening that there's early onset hypertension and urologic events. That's part of the pro-PKD score. And there can all be also be other findings, so more protein in the urine, albuminuria can be associated with an increased risk of progression. And we'll talk about some novel biomarkers. Yeah, one of these uh, biomarkers that has uh, become of recent interest is measuring a morning urine specimen, assessing the urine to plasma urea, uh, which was studied uh, in the the Netherlands. Uh, And basically uh, in this study where they had data from the DPEC cohort of 538 patients, they were able to show for each uh, decrease in urine to plasma urea ratio, there was an increased risk of kidney function progression. Uh, And this was thought to be representing individuals who have difficulty concentrating the urine. And this seemed to be a a parameter that functioned uh, reasonably well statistically compared with other conventional measures of uh, disease progression and is something that we should use uh, more often in our clinical practice to assess our patients. And Nira, I'm curious, how, in your clinical practice, how often do you use the urine to plasma urea ratio? So I haven't started using that yet, but I agree with you. It's a very simple measurement to, to make and it gives us something about inherent uh, uh, disease state. So I think it's definitely something to consider. The other thing I liked about this paper is that they started using a composite risk score. Mm -hmm. So looking at things like the TKV in addition to the uh, mutation type or genotype. And then also, I think um, for patients, what's important is they noted this important effect of increasing salt intake in terms of increasing progression or or, um, uh, TKV and also uh, the importance of blood pressure in affecting these variables. And I think that is a very important point, is when we rely on just a simple uh, single measure, we often find, I think, that we're not doing a great job of predicting with great accuracy when an individual patient will progress, but adding these other factors give us a little bit more precision. Here's what we were talking about in terms of thinking about ultrasound in helping define risk. So in general, someone with an average kidney length, meaning the right and left kidney uh, lengths uh, added together and divided by two, an average length greater than 16.5 in a patient who's less than 45 years old with typical imaging, meaning bilaterally symmetrically enlarged kidneys, predicts high risk. 
And although we say that volumetric measurements by MRI or CT are preferred, what this paper showed is that if volumetric ultrasound is used, a finding of C, D, or E kidneys predicts uh, the, the risk of progression. However, if you get a volumetric, MR, a volumetric ultrasound measurement that's between 1B and 1C, you may then want to consider some additional imaging, either MRIs or CT, to really confirm whether that patient is high risk or low risk. And this is helpful in determining which patients to treat and in finding those high-risk patients to treat who have normal renal function. Craig, let's talk a little bit about how tolvaptin, the drug that's been approved for treatment of ADPKD, compares to other medications that we know Im- impact the progression of kidney disease. Absolutely. So uh, tolvaptin, uh, as many in our audience know, was uh, studied in the Tempo 3-4 and reprise uh, studies. And in these studies, essentially there was about a difference of one ml uh, per minute per year difference in GFR decline when you compare tolvaptan-treated patients uh, to individuals receiving placebo. When you look at this compared to other things we use in nephrology, it's actually a reasonably favorable uh, comparison. And uh, this would range from early studies looking at ACE inhibitors and ARBs to more recent studies looking at SGLT2 inhibitors. I think the key point here is that a one ml per minute uh, per year difference actually translates to a quite significant benefit, especially when we start early in a patient's uh, course. And here, I think this is now data looking longer term. So uh, the uh, Tempo 3-4 study was for three years. This is now looking at five years worth of data. And what's really reassuring here is that finding of that one mil per minute change continued over the five and a half years that this was followed. And this was happening even though after the first year, there was no difference in the change in terms of rate of growth of total kidney volume. So this gets to an important issue, which sometimes comes up of people asking, should we have repeat imaging done to assess are we making a difference. Uh, I, I don't think I do that very often in practice. I don't know how often you do that. And, and the same for me. I mm-hmm. don't repeat imaging unless there's a clinical need, uh, mm-hmm. flank pain or some other need. Craig, another question that comes up is when uh, we should consider stopping tolvaptin therapy. Uh, I know in general that we start tolvaptin therapy for anyone with a GFR of 25 or higher. Do you think there's a cutoff where we should stop? Yeah, so this study uh, that came out about a year ago uh, argues for an ongoing benefit of continuing tolvaptan. So this study uh, uh, took individuals uh, in the reprise trial and compared those who uh, received placebo during reprise but ultimately or subsequently were treated with tolvaptan in the open label extension and compared those individuals to individuals who received tolvaptan during reprise and continued to tolvaptan afterwards. And uh, in a relatively complicated analysis, basically uh, the take-home message here is the group who started tolvaptan uh, after receiving placebo early on had a benefit, even though their GFRs were relatively low. You can see uh, towards the right-hand side of this slide, 
Uh, this included individuals uh, with a baseline GFR between 15 and 29, where with tolvaptan, the rate of decline in GFR was minus 3.4 uh, per mils per minute per year, uh, compared with minus 5.2 uh, for the same individuals when they received placebo and reprise. And this finding was true whether we were looking at people with a GFR between 25 and 29 and 15 and 24. Essentially, uh, and I'll be curious to hear your thoughts about this, uh, my interpretation is, of this is having relative comfort starting people uh, with relatively low GFRs in the 20s uh, uh, and at least considering doing so in the teens uh, and more importantly continuing it uh, through uh, disease progression into the teens and yeah. I'm curious to hear if that's how you approach things. I, I do the, the same. I um, For patients who are losing kidney function and have stage 5 CKD, I often keep them on tolvaptin mm-hmm. therapy um, until the time of transplant or initiation mm-hmm. of dialysis mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, really have only stopped tolvaptin if there was another need. So they needed high doses of diuretics mm-hmm. because they were developing edema. So, Craig, a question that often comes up is what to do about those patients who are over 55 but clearly progressing. I know in reprise there was not a clear benefit for these older patients. What do you think of this new poster? Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, uh, poster uh, that basically looks at tolvaptan versus non-tolvaptan care in uh, individuals over the age of 55. Uh, with CKD stages three and four. So these are people who are progressing, maybe not rapidly. If you remember earlier, we talked about rapid progression being uh, approaching ESRD uh, in the early 60s. So this is a group who's sort of progressing, but maybe not quite as rapidly. It's a relatively small study of 95 individuals between 56 and 65 years of age, uh, and the majority of whom were CKD3, and a lesser group of CKD4. And here's the key point, which is even in this older group, uh, those treated with tolvaptan here in green experienced about a minus 2.3 decline in GFR annually. And those not treated with uh, tolvaptan labeled SOC or standard of care here continue to progress at the usual rate of minus 4 mLs per minute per year. So take-home point is over the course of four to five years here, there was a continued benefit of tolvaptan even in this older group, as you can see by about an absolute risk uh, difference of 1.66 mLs per minute per year. Terrific. And I think in my practice, I often have this conversation mm-hmm. with older patients who are clearly progressing. And I've seen some, some nice slowing of progression in these patients. I think we'll change gears a little bit and now talk about non-pharmacologic interventions in terms of management of ADPKD patients. And the first one is blood pressure control. So after the HALT-PKD study, um, especially for those patients who are at high risk of progression, we've all adopted a goal blood pressure of about 110 over 75. Uh, This is particularly a good target for those patients who still have preserved renal function, a GFR greater than 60 mils per minute, and are relatively younger. Uh, And then looking at how we define progression, these are the Mayo class 1C to 1E patients, or perhaps patients who have an intracranial aneurysm, or some other evidence of uh, risk, such as a valvular heart disease. 
And for patients who start to lose GFR or for older patients, most of us are still using the older blood pressure target, which is 130 over 85. Craig, do you have a preference of which medications you use for treatment of high blood pressure? Yeah, I tend to uh, take an approach that is fairly nephrocentric, I suppose, which is uh, a focus on ACE inhibition and ARBs uh, as my first line choice of agents. Uh, this is uh, the agents that were studied in the HALT study would be one reason for it. Our patients, as we alluded to earlier, occasionally will have albuminuria, which would be another reason uh, to prefer uh, this choice of agent. Uh, and obviously, as nephrologists, we're very familiar with these. Uh, following this, uh, probably beta blocker uh, would be my next choice of agent, uh, followed by calcium channel blockers and diuretics. Uh, with the potential issue of diuretics being a concern sometimes when we're also thinking about tolvaptan use. Uh, atop of that, as we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, dietary approaches, so a dietary uh, approaches to stop hypertension. The DASH diet is something that I uh, frequently uh, urge my patients to follow. And I think we were all waiting to see what the results of this study were. This, this is a study where they looked at, at water as an outcome in changing TKV and changing um, uh, uh, progression of PKD. And I think this study was done nicely in that they tried to target uh, osmolarity and tried to keep the osmolarity fixed and then target specific water prescriptions based on that. And here are the results of that trial. And what they found, I think, somewhat uh, uh, surprisingly, was that there was really no difference for those patients who got the prescribed water intake versus those patients who were told to just simply drink uh, uh, water in a, in a liberal way. And here, I think, is another critical uh, uh, finding. This is one of those papers that when it came out, it went straight into the clinic. And it looks at the difference between salt intake and protein intake on change in GFR. And really what I thought was so interesting here is that uh, the, the, there's clear association of salt and decline in GFR in ADPKD. Um, and that uh, similar change was not seen with protein intake. And if you, if you look to the right, it, it looks like really that mediation is not because salt increases blood pressure, but because salt increases vasopressin release um, and copeptin levels. So here, um, and, and we saw in the pre prior slide too, that salt increases cyst growth. So I think it's a clear message for our PKD patients to really limit the amount of salt that they're ingesting. And somewhat sobering, uh... Uh, news here is that despite there being uh, no lower limit of salt intake that was actually the more the lower the salt intake the better the patient did uh, when you look at data uh, from uh, various studies and this is also coming out of uh, the Netherlands uh, basically over the course of a six-year study the dietary salt remained fixed at a level that's higher than what our goals should have been. So this was uh, measured in a 24-hour urine, and basically, despite a desire to lower dietary salt uh, in this population, it 
there really wasn't a profound effect. So we really do have our work cut out for us on educating our patients uh, and uh, maybe even working with the food industries, et cetera, to really uh, address this goal. I think this is another really important uh, message. And and now with... uh with good treatment for obesity, something that I spend a lot of time talking about. So this is a a study looking at the annual change in total kidney volume and looking at patients who were either normal weight, overweight, or obese. And what you can see is as the, the weight, as the BMI goes up, there's an increase or an acceleration in the annual change in total kidney volume. And this has led to a real interest in looking at dietary interventions as potentially disease-modifying treatments in PKD. Uh, You can see here several of the diets that are under investigation and and of interest right now. So the first is caloric restriction, which is essentially just restricting the number of calories uh, taken in daily. Intermittent fasting is alternating between days of eating and days or periods of fasting. Uh, The third of these is time-restricted eating, uh, where a a window of restricted eating occurs, uh, and in other periods, uh, eating is allowed ad-lib. And finally is a ketogenic diet, which has also been of great interest uh, recently, which is a diet high in fat, moderate in protein, and very low in carbohydrate. So one of the the, uh, nice pieces of data presented at the ASN in 2021 was the the work coming out of Colorado from Katerina Hopp and and Kristen Nowak about the role of obesity in ADPKD. And what they showed was that in treating those patients who were obese, who lost weight, had a decrease in growth of total kidney volume. Has that changed your management? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, I, I am not just focused on ADH antagonism in tolvaptan. I'm now really pushing my patients uh, in a number of these areas, including dietary salt, uh, as well as for those who are overweight and obese to consider uh, under the guidance of a dietitian uh, various of these dietary interventions. Uh, We're in early days here. There's not a lot of data, uh, but these diets, for the most part, are well-studied in other conditions and are safe, especially uh, under the auspices of a dietitian. So our focus has really changed to a more extensive discussion about weight loss and these various diets. And I think from a patient point of view, the patients really appreciate that very holistic Mm -hmm. approach talking about diet and fluid and lifestyle Mm -hmm. in addition to therapy. And in the final minutes, just to talk about other management in ADPKD. So we spoke a lot about managing kidney and and, uh, blood pressure, but the the patient has a a full complexity of findings, including thinking about extra renal manifestations, liver cysts, uh, intracranial aneurysms, sometimes cardiac abnormalities, and really we're, we're treating that entire uh, panel of problems, right, of, of, um, of kidney pain, kidney cysts, uh, liver cyst infections, things like that, and to, to really think about this in, a, in the broader context of treating the entire patient. 
and from very early stages to um, through the the um, ESRD uh, process and either to transplant or to dialysis. And that brings us to our summary and key takeaways. So the Mayo imaging classification of 1C to 1E predict a rapid risk of progression in patients with ADPKD. Tolvaptin, a vasopressin or V2 receptor antagonist, is at the time the only approved drug to slow the progression of disease in ADPKD. It's recommended for high-risk patients with relatively early disease. Tolvaptin should also be considered in patients with more advanced disease, i.e. in stage 3 to 4 CKD. And there's an interaction with genetic, epigenetic, and environmental factors which influences disease progression. Intensive blood pressure control, less than 110 over 75, is preferred, particularly for those patients with, uh, with preserved renal function, with an ACE inhibitor, or with an angiotensin receptor blocker as the first line of drug treatment. High water intake and low dietary salt should be recommended. Reduced caloric intake, intermittent fasting, and ketogenic diet are promising, but are unconfirmed dietary interventions to slow disease progression. And with that, Craig, I would like to thank you for being part of this nice discussion. And we hope to all of you that you find this presentation useful in your clinical practice. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.